Uh, but as we've been looking at the problems in the world, we realize that the threat of global climate change is not the only one. Uh, the threat of nuclear proliferation with North Korea and Iran, very close to putting nuclear warheads on missiles, is very real, very serious, uh, because these states in particular are unpredictable. And there are many other serious problems. The uh, civil wars around the world, genocide, where millions of people have been killed, the threat of devastating diseases, uh, possibly erupting and, and killing millions of people, uh, the injustice and unrighteousness, uh, persecution of minorities and of Christians, uh, the threat of the lack of water, which is very real in many countries right now, and the declining moral and ethical standards, particularly in the West, which has been blessed over the last hundreds of years. And really you could say the world is upside down. And some people were looking to one country to solve these problems, the United States. But it's become obvious, I think, to them as well as everyone else, that this isn't going to happen. One country is not going to solve these problems. In fact, these problems are intractable. Many of them perhaps have no solution. And just recently, a new individual has arisen, a new president, Obama, and people have been looking to him to solve these problems. And he just had a recent visit to the Middle East and to deal with some of these problems. And time will tell uh, whether he'll be able to uh, deal with some of these uh, problems, these huge problems that have been afflicting us. I want you to go back with me now in the Middle East to approximately 2,800 years ago, to a time 800 years before Christ. The major powers were not the United States, Russia, China, and Europe, but were Babylon, Assyria, and Egypt. And squeezed in between them, there was a little country, Israel. There was a prophet in Israel, Isaiah, and he was writing one of the greatest pieces of literature ever written. Even secular scholars and literary critics recognized the book of Isaiah as an amazing piece of literature. And he was writing this book to describe Israel's role in these problems in the world. And in this book, we find that God calls Israel. God says, I have called you Israel, the nation Israel, to be my servant, to bring the knowledge of the one true God to the world, to result in justice and righteousness. What happened? In Isaiah, we read, and especially in the second part of Isaiah, that they failed. The nation Israel failed. They fell into the same idolatry, immorality, materialism, and injustice right in their own nation that characterized the nations around. So then something mysterious happens in Isaiah. God says, I will bring in a new servant, an individual, a mysterious person, and he will do this. He will bring the knowledge of God, the light of God's uh, knowledge to the Gentiles. He will bring justice in this world. He will bring peace. And so we find uh, in the book of Isaiah that there are four servant songs about this mysterious person, this mysterious servant who replaces Israel after they had failed. Chapter 42, 49, 50, and 53. Actually, the fourth servant song starts at the end of chapter 52 in verse 13. And God says, see, my servant. Now, the first of the four servant songs, Isaiah 42, deals with these major issues of justice and righteousness and poverty among the nations. But by the time we get to the last servant song, Isaiah 53, 
we find that there's a problem much deeper than any of these problems. The same problem we have in the world today, much deeper and more serious, and that lies at the bottom of these major and very serious and intractable world problems that we're facing today. And to deal with this very deep problem, the problem of humanity, God has a special servant, his servant, see my servant. And this last servant song, as we read through that, we'll see what it is about. It's poetry. As I mentioned that Isaiah was an amazing book of literature, but not just of prose, Isaiah is an amazing book of poetry. And Hebrew poetry runs in parallelism. Two lines go together and sometimes three lines go together. And what's interesting about Hebrew poetry is it can be easily translated into English because it doesn't depend upon rhyme or rhythm, but on repetition, on parallelism, and on a a beautiful symmetry that comes right through in the English language. And so as we go through this poem, we're going to see that. So I'll read this first stanza. There are five stanzas all together. And I'll read the first stanza, which is an introduction to the whole poem. God says, See, my servant will act wisely or prosper. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness, so he will sprinkle or startle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they, had not, what they were not told they will see and what they have not heard they will understand. There's the two Hebrew words used in the second line, raised and lifted up, occur together only 20 times in the whole Old Testament. Individually, they occur many times, but together as a pair, raised and lifted up, or high and lifted up, maybe you'll start to remember something now, only occur together 20 times. And 10 of those are in the book of Isaiah. And if you look at those 10 times they occur together, they often describe God. We had that already in Isaiah 6. I saw the Lord high and lifted up, or exalt, or raised and lifted up, the same two Hebrew words. And then again in Isaiah 57, God says, I am the one who lives in a high and lifted up place, but I dwell with the person who is contrite and lowly in spirit. In fact, all the times they occur positively, they describe God, who he is and what he does. Then they they also are used several times in Isaiah to describe proud people, proud people who raise and lift themselves up against others. And the book of Isaiah uses the metaphors of the tall uh, cedars of Lebanon, those bold and tall and imposing trees, and that some people, the kings and the, the rich people of Israel and other nations who try to lift themselves up and raise themselves up are like that. And God says they are proud, and I will bring down the pride of those people who raise themselves up and lift themselves up, these two Hebrew words. But what's amazing is that there's one exception to that pattern, and the exception occurs in this verse, chapter 52 and verse 13. Here God says there is a person who will be raised and lifted up who will have my favor, as we will see when we go on. My servant will be raised and lifted up. But then, if we just put this uh, parenthesis, uh, grayed out so we can look at that, there's something mysterious about this person. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, so he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths at him. Most mysterious thing, They were appalled at him. They will be amazed by him. 
That appalled is a very strong Hebrew word. The servant was despised. People were appalled at him. But then they will be amazed by him. They will shut their mouths. And the word many is chosen very carefully here. And we'll see that later when we come to the end of this poem. So this mysterious servant, living 800 years before Christ, who will be rejected, people will be appalled at him, but he will, people will end up, the nations, the kings, that shutting their mouths at him, who will it be? These last two verses tell us that one day everyone will understand. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. One day, Isaiah was saying, everyone will know. And so I've given this a title. One day, everybody will understand. So picture yourself living back 800 years before Christ, reading Isaiah's prophecy. And you read this and you say, who is this mysterious servant? Who is this person who will end up being high and exalted just as God is himself? But who people were appalled at? Who is he? And then you read to the end of this first stanza and you say, one day everyone will understand. Well, that one day arrived with the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so when we come to the New Testament, we find another servant poem. You could call that the fifth servant poem in Philippians 2. And Paul quotes it when he writes the book of Philippians. Uh, many scholars feel that he didn't actually, he, in chapter 2 in verses 5 to 11, he didn't actually write those words himself, but he was quoting a well-known poem or a song that the first Christians uh, sang. And here it is. Paul says, Let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, although being in the form of God, did not think it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon himself the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him. Notice in Greek, same word that reflects in that Hebrew word. He will be raised and exalted and highly lifted up. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ is the one who will be raised and highly exalted. And God will ensure that. One of the interesting things about the Bible is God's swearing. <laughs> now, you can sort of startle at that, right? But the Hebrew word says God swears in certain places. He swears an oath. Only God can do that, right? We're told not to swear. We're told to let our yes be yes and our no be no. But an amazing thing, there's a couple of places where God wants to so emphatically say something that he swears an oath. One of them is in Genesis 22. When Abraham was so obedient, God said, I swear by myself. There was no one greater God could swear by. I swear by myself that because of your faithfulness, you will inherit the land. Many nations will be blessed through you, Abraham, because you're obedient. But when we get to Isaiah chapter 45, there's another oath. In the midst of the failure of nation Israel, how will God be exalted in the world? How will God be exalted in Israel and among the nations when the same failure that characterized the world is now characterizing Israel? Well, God's raising up a, ser a servant. 
But in Isaiah 45, God also says, I swear that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. When you first read Isaiah 55, you might think, well, God is saying that he will make every tongue confess and every knee bow to him. But here we see in this stanza that he has a servant who will be exalted and lifted up. And when we go to Philippians, we see that every tongue will confess and every knee will bow before the Lord Jesus, the Lord of glory. As I was reading this and preparing my sermon, I realized that this is in the Hebrew Scriptures. And I've had different conversations with Jewish colleagues before. And I was wondering and thinking about, well, how did the Jews interpret Isaiah 53, starting with chapter 52 and verse 13? So I went to Wikipedia. It's not bad, actually, for science issues. I often go to Wikipedia for science questions just to check things out, not for politics. Uh, But when I came there, I found, first of all, it said this. Isaiah 53 is the last of the four songs of the suffering servant and tells the story of the suffering servant. It is known for its interpretation by many Christians to be a prophecy of the coming of Jesus, being written over 700 years before his birth. Well, then I read on. Then I found this. This interpretation, however, is rejected by Jewish theologians who identify the servant to be the nation of Israel. Now, as we've seen, the nation of Israel is called to be God's servant in the book of Isaiah. And many times you'll read that where God says, you are my servant Israel, whom I have chosen. But as you read through that, you see they failed. And so this mysterious other servant is introduced. So then I read on. While contemporary rabbis often identify the servant of Isaiah 53 as the Jewish people, a significant amount of historical rabbis have interpreted the servant in messianic terms. And it lists eight different rabbis and quotes from them throughout the last two millennia who looked at Isaiah 53 and saw that as being the Messiah, this mysterious person. They recognized it must be the coming Messiah, not Jesus Christ, because they, didn't, they were Jewish rabbis. They didn't believe in Jesus. But they were waiting for a Messiah who would perfectly fulfill this chapter because they realized that the nation Israel couldn't do that. Other scholars talk about this as maybe referring to another servant, Moses, the servant of God. Or perhaps Isaiah himself, a servant. Or perhaps Jeremiah, a coming servant. But as we move through this poem, we're going to see how that it couldn't be. It could only be one person. It can only be the Lord Jesus Christ. And as you read through the New Testament, you find that over and over again, the New Testament Christians refer to Isaiah 53. I've been collecting references and quotations of this chapter, and so far I've found about 27 throughout the New Testament. On the average, one per book of the New Testament. Just amazing. Uh, Someone said to me last night that without Isaiah 53, it would be very hard to write the New Testament. It's so integral to the truths and to the expression of truth and to the faith of New Testament Christians, Isaiah 53. But before I go on to the other four stanzas, which I'll go through a little bit faster, I want to come back to this parenthesis. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. One Jewish rabbi who was commenting on this says, this word disfigured, which only occurs here in the whole Hebrew Bible, is a very strong word. It's talking about inhuman disfiguration, terrible disfiguration. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. And as I thought about that, 
And I thought about the contemporary Jews, especially since the Second World War, thinking of this as being the nation Israel. I remember when I visited the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. Saw the terrible, inhuman treatment that Israel as a nation received. You could say that as a nation, Israel was terribly, inhumanly disfigured more than any other nation. And I had a sense of how the Jews could see that in this verse. They could see the terrible suffering they went through. Just incredible uh, genocide. And just not simple genocide, but terrible suffering. And I began to feel for my Jewish colleagues and friends and what they've suffered. I have a colleague at work for many years, and he had uncles and cousins that suffered and that were killed in that terrible genocide. And most Jews that you would come in contact with today that are a little bit older, have re- almost all of them have relatives that suffered in this. And so I began to sympathize for them. And yet as we go through the poem, the rest of the poem, we'll see, as the rabbis themselves throughout the centuries saw, it really can't refer to the nation Israel. But this mysterious servant who suffered, suffered for the nation of Israel. Just as they suffered so terribly, he suffered. He was marred beyond human likeness. So we go to the second stanza, and this time I would like you to read it with me. Remembering that the lines go in pairs, in the parallelism. Let's all read this together. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by others. A man acquainted with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. I think the first time I memorized this, it was in the King James Bible. So as I'm reading the NIV, sometimes the words from the King James Bible come back. And I'm sure some of those of you who are older, like myself, probably have the same thing happen. We step inside now. The first paragraph, the first stanza, is an introduction. It gives us the conclusion that at the end of the road, this servant will be exalted and highly exalted and raised up, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we step inside in this beautiful poem, and we look at him, and we say, who would believe this? Let's look at the first verse. Arm of the Lord is a metaphor for power, for the power that will rescue Israel. Who will deliver Israel? And so these people are saying, who, who would have believed who would have believed that it was this person who would deliver Israel? Who would have believed that this person, this mysterious servant at whom people were appalled, would be the one that God would use to rescue Israel? When we come to John's Gospel, we find that Jesus did many miracles. Seven miracles stand out in John's Gospel. And he did wonderful teaching. But when we get to chapter 12 we find that people didn't believe him. They rejected him. They rejected the power that he showed. They rejected the teaching. And so John quotes in John 12, this verse from Isaiah. He says, as Isaiah says, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Also in Romans 10, verse 16, Paul comes to the same conclusion. He says, we preach, the word's preached, but who has believed his message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Let's go on. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of a dry ground. This reminded me of Psalm 1, 
which some of you perhaps know, where it says, the man who trusts in the Lord, who follows his word, who meditates in the Torah, in the law, he'll be like a tree planted by rivers of water so that the roots go down into the deep rivers of water, who brings forth his fruit in his season. And whatever he does will prosper and his leaves don't, don't wither. In contrast to that, this servant, the Lord Jesus, was like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. Henry Blosser, one of the commentaries, writes, Jesus was born in obscurity and poverty, and he did not use ordinary human means to draw people to himself. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Again, we have two Hebrew words for beauty and for appearance. And when you look at where those two Hebrew words occur together in the Old Testament, only about five times. And usually it's regarding the heroes of the Jewish faith. So we find, for example, that Jacob was attracted to Rachel because she had beauty and had a a beautiful appearance. She was good looking. And then we come to Joseph and he was good looking. Beauty and appearance that characterized him. What about David? He was characterized by these same two Hebrew words. He was good looking. He had a good appearance. Then we come to Esther, Queen Esther, the hero. Uh, Some of you women have been studying Queen Esther and her faith, but she also had beauty and a good appearance. And so what's remarkable is when we come to Isaiah, after these other Jewish figures had these two uh, characteristics, they were good looking, they stood out. Isaiah, through the Holy Spirit, says this servant, the Lord Jesus, had no beauty and there was nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. And I thought, wow, what a rebuke. What a rebuke. You know, we place so much emphasis on appearance. People appear in TV or in front of us and uh, have to get all dressed up and there's scandals about people falsifying photographs so they look better than they really are in the news. And I thought it's because we place so much emphasis on how people appear. And this servant, the Lord Jesus, had, didn't have that beauty or that appearance. And as you read through the Gospels, you find that there's very little description of what he looked like. But there's a description of what he said. Many times it says they wondered at the gracious words that came out of his mouth. And I think of what uh, the Lord said to Samuel when Samuel was looking for a new king. And the Lord said to him, people look on the outward appearance. So true. Isn't it? People look on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And as I read these verses, it was really a, a rebuke to my spirit when I think of myself, how that through my eyes I'm often uh, attracted or noticed by appearance without thinking of what a person's really like on the inside. Well, this servant who accomplished God's will had no beauty, no appearance. Perhaps the people who serve the Lord most and who are most blessed by the Lord in serving others are the ones that are not successful because of their appearance, because of their faithfulness and their heart like the Lord Jesus himself. We despised him. He was a man of suffering. We held him in low esteem. I gave it this stanza of the title, We Naturally Despised Him at First. Who is the we? We're stepping inside now. It's not the many, not the kings, it's we. In first step, it will be the nation Israel. He came unto his own and his own did not receive him. Then it's the world. He was in the world, and the world did not recognize him. Is the world any different today? If he came back today as a humble servant, nothing in his appearance would attract people, would it be any different? I don't believe so. It's us. 
we despised him. It's our natural, uh, human, sinful reaction. We look at people who are outstanding, good-looking, but this servant comes and we despised him. But then, first, first line, who has believed our message? Then through God's Spirit we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this one who is despised becomes very glorious in our eyes as we go through this poem. I'm going to read this stanza the first time, but later on I'm going to ask you to read it with me when I show some things in it. This is the, the middle stanza. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is also quoted in the New Testament in Matthew 8. First of all, look at the references to he and to him. Ten times it's about him. It's about the suffering servant, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. In fact, in the Hebrew, uh, when it says in verse 5, surely he, the Hebrew uses a very emphatic word. It says, surely he himself took up our pain. And then again in verse 5, he himself was pierced for our transgressions. So this stanza, this middle stanza, this key part as we go inside to the middle of this poem is about how much he suffered for you and I. But we're in there too. It was our pain, our suffering. It was we who considered him punished by God. We thought, the Jews speaking, Gentiles down through the ages, we thought this despised servant was being punished by God. But, verse 5, that huge but, but our eyes were opened and we saw that he was being punished for us. It was for our sins. He had done nothing wrong. He was the perfect servant. It was for our iniquities, our sins, that he was being punished. This wasn't Moses. couldn't be Moses. There was a time when Moses said to God, God, instead of punishing Israel, punish me. Put their sins upon me. Let me be abandoned instead of wiping out Israel. And God said, no, Moses, that can't happen. Moses couldn't do it. Moses had sinned himself. That's why Moses didn't go into the promised land. He was a human mortal like ourselves. He was a sinful man. He had sinned. It couldn't be Moses. What about Isaiah? We just read this morning, Isaiah was in the temple and he saw the Lord high and lifted up. And Isaiah said, woe is me. Woe is me, for I am a sinful man. It can't be Isaiah. It can't be the nation Israel. The only person who can be punished for the sins of others is someone who, was never, who never sinned himself. He knew no sin. He did no sin. In him was no sin. The New Testament says in three different places. He was the one that God made sin for you and I. You know, when Alan called me, Alan Wiseman, and, and said, what are, you, what are you speaking on? And I said, Isaiah 53. And he said, isn't that amazing? Because we're going to start out with Isaiah 6, when Isaiah enters and sees the holiness of God. Holy, holy, holy. And we had developed, uh, the, the choir and Alan had developed and chosen these songs they were going to sing 
completely independent. I didn't know that while I was just thinking about Isaiah 53 and looking at the heart, the key problem of the world, our sinfulness. And here's how they come together and why people don't recognize it. You can't understand how terrible sin is unless you first understand how holy God is. And the world doesn't recognize the holiness of God. And that's why they don't recognize that the root of all these huge intractable problems is the problem of sin. Sin causes selfishness. Sin causes violence. Sin causes strife. Sin causes greed, materialism. Sin causes injustice. But until you recognize the holiness of God, you can't recognize the seriousness of sin. And that's why in Isaiah chapter 6, God calls Isaiah. Isaiah's in the temple and God gives him this vision. Before Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah can talk about Christ taking our sins away, Isaiah has to have an experience of God. Holy, 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 he hears a seraphim saying, is the Lord God Almighty. He has to be struck in with his own sinfulness in the presence of a holy God. And then in the second book of Isaiah, in chapter 53, he can then talk about the Lord Jesus, his perfect servant, whom Isaiah didn't, just through the eyes of faith, he knew someone was coming who would have to be sacrificed for our sins. I've given this middle paragraph stanza the title, God was punishing him for our sins. And as you go through the New Testament, you notice how the, the many verses reflect on this. He was pierced uh, for our transgressions. Well, the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. He was crushed for our iniquities. We sang that, the fact that he was crushed. Uh, in 1 Corinthians, it says, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. When Paul said that, he was thinking of scriptures such as Isaiah 53. Uh, Peter said, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Again, Peter says, he bore our sins in his body on the tree. It says here, the Lord, in verse, the end of verse 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And we see that reflected throughout the New Testament. But look at the verbs. As I was thinking of this, I'd never done this before. I underlined these verbs. God punished him, struck him, afflicted him. He was pierced, crushed, punished, wounded. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Some of you, like myself, have seen the Passion film. And in the film, The Passion, we see the terrible sufferings of the Lord at the hands of men, at the hands of the Romans especially, but also his own people. But you know, there were sufferings that we never saw and will never see. The Lord blacked out the sun for three hours. In those three hours of darkness, Jesus was not punished by man. He was punished by God. How can that be? It was something that people couldn't see, weren't allowed to see, wouldn't understand. And in those three hours of darkness, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We'll never understand that sinful people redeemed we won't understand that we won't understand that because we don't have the same sensitivity to sin as he did he had never sinned never thought a sin he had resisted sin resisted temptation perfectly all his life and he was punished for our sins you know there's a children's story that's really an amazing story many of you have read it the, the lion the witch and the wardrobe and the movies some of the movies are really good too and there comes a moment when Aslan, who's going to bring back peace and get rid of this spell that the white witch has cast on the world, 
this, this terrible problem, which is causing all the other problems, such as the terribly cold winter there. And Aslan is going to conquer. He's the lion. But then there's an eerie night, and the children say, something's weird tonight. And they get up from their sleep, and they crawl up to the altar on the top of the hill, and they see Aslan, the lion, lying bound on the altar. And they see the white witch ready to kill him. And they know that Aslan is more powerful than the white witch. As Aslan came into the country, the snow started disappearing, spring came, they knew he was more powerful. And they can't understand how Aslan could be bound and conquered by the white witch. And they talk to him and say, what is happening? And I can't quote the words exactly, but Aslan says to them, children, this is the only way that this deep magic that has bound this world can be broken. The only way if I let myself be killed by the white witch. We were down in Columbia for several years working as tent makers, and there was a teacher at the school we were teaching, an international school, and she was a Baha'i missionary. Uh, also there, for the same purpose as we were, to share our faith with others. She wanted to share her Baha'i faith. And uh, we found out that we had her over several times for, for dinner and befriended her. She was a single woman. And we found out that she liked literature, and she loved The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and, uh, and she, other, other of um, C.S. Lewis's books. And so as we went through that, we shared with her one night about that. We said, do you remember that? Why, why did Aslan have to let himself be killed? And she didn't know. And we said, you know, sin is so terrible and God is so holy that there was no other solution. This is the only solution, the only way that the bondage of sin, the greatest problem the world faces, can be broken. If God's only son, who had never sinned himself, could die for our sins. He is the only one. Now I want you to read this through this stanza with me. Uh, this time, instead of our, whenever the word our or we or us appears, I want you to put in the word my, I, or me. Okay? I'll do it too. Let's read it through. Surely he took up my pain and bore my suffering. Yet I considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for my transgressions. He was crushed for my iniquities. The punishment that brought me peace was on him, and by his wounds I am healed. I, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of myself has turned to my own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of me. doesn't quite work in some, right? You have to take the alls out. How old do you have to be to understand the atonement? Not that word, but the fact that sin is terrible. God is holy and must punish sin. And for me to be saved and not be punished for my own sin, someone else who never sinned has to die in my place and be punished for my sin. I was four years old. My sister next oldest to me, Ruth, was five and a half. My mother was expecting another baby, and she was going through a really hard sickness. So we were sent to Ottawa to my grandparents from Toronto, Ottawa, on the train. There was probably an aunt with us or someone. I don't remember who the adult was. can't imagine sending two children by themselves. Uh, but my grandparents were at the end of the line to receive us. went overnight. My sister and I shared a booth. Ruth said to me, 
Dougie? That was what she called me in those days. You know that you sinned. And I said, yes, I know. <laughs> and God has to punish sin. I said, yes, I know that too. But Jesus died for your sin. Do you know that Jesus died? And I said, yes, I know that Jesus died. And she said, Jesus, the Son of God, died for you, for your sins. I said, yes, I know. She said, do you believe that? I said, yes, I believe that. She said, have you ever asked Jesus to be your personal Savior? And I said, no. That night, I knelt down and I invited the Lord into my life. Amazing that a child can understand that someone died for them, loved them so much, they can have a new life. When I was 15, of course, I went through those teen years when I rebelled against God, and, but God didn't give up on me. I heard his voice and he brought me back to follow him and gave me assurance that that decision I had made to follow him when I was four was true and was a commitment that I had made that he would honor. Ruth went on to become an academic long before me, well-known professor, lectured at many universities, headed up universities' departments, spent half her life in China. Last week, or two weeks ago, I got an email from her, from China. She was at one of the universities where she had worked and in which she had headed up for several years. And she, this, this email had a picture, a photograph of one of the, the new professors, a young professor, about 30, Asian background. And she said, this professor, probably from a Confucius or Buddhist background, has become a Christian. And I thought, wow, even though she had buried herself in academics all these years, she was still interested and keen to see people become Christians. And I remembered uh, that time 55 years ago when I was the first person probably that she shared with me and led me to become a Christian. You can do that tonight. If you've never done that, you're not too old or too young to do that. You can just bow in the Lord's presence and say, Lord, I believe that you did die for me, that you did bear my sins. And I accept you as my Savior. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. I'm going to pray right now for you if you've never done this. Lord Jesus, you died for my sins. You died for our sins. You died for the whole world. And I pray, Lord Jesus, if there be someone here tonight who knows this, knows that it's true that you died at the cross for us, but has never asked you to be their Savior, they may invite you, Lord Jesus, into their life this morning and give thanks to you for dying for their sins and say, I believe, Lord Jesus, that you are my Savior. Amen. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested or considered? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Although he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. I gave this paragraph, the fourth one, the second last one, the title, He Died Without Even Complaining. He didn't open his mouth. Amazing thing. We read that at the end of each one of the four Gospels. Until the high priest adjured him to speak, he didn't open his mouth. There was no self-defense there. He was like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is silent. He was the lamb that was being offered as a sacrifice for others. And so John the Baptist said, Behold, 
the Lamb of God when he saw him. Thinking back, no doubt, to Exodus 12, the Passover lamb, and also to Isaiah 53, the lamb that was led to the slaughter. Beautiful change of metaphors. In the previous verse, we were like sheep that went astray. In this verse, he's the lamb that goes to the cross for us. It's very clear that he died. You know, some Islam, Islamic groups say that he went to the cross, but he didn't actually die. He rose from the cross and went up to northern India, to Kashmir, proclaiming the truth. But in fact, he did die. He was in the grave. There were witnesses there. It says here in this Isaiah, he was cut off. He was punished. He was given a grave. He was with the rich in his death. So it couldn't be Isaiah. It couldn't be anyone else. It couldn't be the nation Israel. They didn't die. Death is the end of your existence unless God raises you from the dead. He died. It's very clear. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we come to the last. Now what's amazing about this beautiful poetry is every paragraph, I don't know if you've been noticing, every paragraph has three verses in the Hebrew also, but the verses have been getting longer. We started out in the first uh, paragraph with nine lines. And then the second paragraph had 10 lines, and then 12 lines, and then 13 lines. And this fifth stanza, this concluding stanza, in a crescendo, has 14 lines. I had to reduce the type size to fit it on the screen. It's beautiful poetry, getting longer and longer. And then it comes to this, this concluding paragraph. And notice what it says. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. It was God's will. It was God's will because God knew it was the only solution for his son who had never sinned to die, be punished, and die for our sins. But God knew something. Abraham believed this also, that after death there's resurrection. And so in between these two it says, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. How can that happen? How will he see his offspring? Jesus had no children. He's talking about a spiritual offspring. How will he see them? He didn't see many before he died in resurrection. Although the resurrection isn't explicitly stated here, it's implied throughout. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. It's very clear this paragraph talks about the servant who suffered and died will live again to see the fruits of what he did. This middle statement is very strong in the Hebrew. It says, by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. The Hebrew verb for justify there, the form of the verb is he will declare righteous. It doesn't say he will make people become just by keeping the law. It says, by his knowledge, my righteous servant will declare righteous before a holy God. This line, this whole poem, is the answer to Isaiah 6. How can anyone be righteous and clean and holy in the sight of a holy, holy, holy God? So Isaiah said, woe is me. And the coal from the altar was taken, put to his lips. But he didn't know what that coal signified. It came from the place of sacrifice. When we come to Isaiah 53... This servant, by being the sacrifice and by suffering for our sins and by being punished by God and by dying and by rising again, he is able to declare, strongly declare righteous many. Not everybody, because everyone won't believe in him, sadly. Millions will, millions do. He will declare righteous. I've given this title, By Dying, He Will Bring Life to Millions. 
And the many here that will curse Pharaoh is a key word. You remember in the first paragraph, many kings, many people were appalled at him. Many kings will shut their mouths at him. In the last paragraph, we come back to the first paragraph. In the first paragraph, my servant will prosper and deal wisely. In the last paragraph, it says here, uh, he will prosper. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. In the first paragraph, many people will be astounded and startled. In the last paragraph, many will be justified and declared righteous. But even the ones that aren't will be given to him. I will give him a portion among the great or the many, and he will divide the spoils with the strong. Even those kings and those uh, strong, proud ones who do not bow the knee before Christ will bow the knee because God swore that in Isaiah 45. And Philippians 2 says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, not just believers. I believe that's everyone in heaven and earth, under the earth, everybody will bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so if you say, I'm not going to accept that today, I'm, I'm not ready, I don't, I don't want to bow my knee to Jesus, you will one day, but now's your opportunity. Now's your opportunity to open your heart and to bow the knee and to say, Jesus is Lord. He died. He rose. He's Lord. I'm going to accept that. I'm going to bow the knee. And so we come to the end. I will give him a portion among the great. He will divide the spoils with the strong because he bore the sin of many. This is our Savior. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. This chapter is the key to the New Testament. Amazing that we find the key chapter to the New Testament in the middle of the Old Testament, in the middle of the book of Isaiah. God, may God be glorified. May his servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, be glorified as we continue singing and worshiping this morning. I want to bless you and myself with two things. First, a deep sense of God's holiness and the terribleness of sin this week. Perhaps picturing yourself in Isaiah 6 in the temple in the presence of God's holiness. But then second, and this must follow, a deep sense of thankfulness and assurance and a deep sense of God's love and knowing that you are saved forever, that you are declared righteous because Jesus was punished for your sins, so that you can come with great freedom forever into the presence of a holy God. A great sense of God's holiness and a great sense and thankfulness of Jesus' sacrifice to give us eternal life. Amen.